BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the phone with us is Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books, his most recent Understanding Socialism. His website's democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F, as in Professor Wolf, W-O-L-F-F. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. I am very curious to hear your thoughts on where we're at. I think last week when we talked, or maybe it was even the week before that, I had said to a congressman on this program after the first stimulus was passed, I said, it's going to take at least $10 trillion to get us out of this hole, to get us through the year. You know, we're going to have to basically make up for an economy that's not running. We have now 10 million people out of work. You know, are people's jobs going to be there when they go back? What's America going to look like economically a year from now? And banks are warning that Trump's small business loan program is headed for a total disaster. Your thoughts on these things, sir? Well, I think that the truth of it is nobody knows. And I'm not going to get myself into difficulty with you and your listeners by pretending that I could answer that question. There are simply too many variables, number one, and too much is happening too quickly for us to understand. I mean, when I saw the numbers this week of the increase in people applying for unemployment, where we're losing, you know, I don't know, a million people a day or or some astronomical number of people basically losing their jobs, losing their incomes, you have to shake your head in disbelief. In a few short weeks, we have gone from an economy that the president of our country referred to as the greatest in the world to an economy that looks to us now, and I mean this seriously, to be entering into a depression the likes of which we've only seen once before, namely in the 1930s, a literal complete breakdown in which millions of people have no job, in which vast portions of our business community have effectively stopped functioning, and in which the next steps are so scary and so unknown that everyone is in a limbo of sorts, uh, with the only extra weird part of it being that we're isolated in our little living situations, being told that it's uh, life-threatening to go outside. I mean, under such circumstances, making predictions is very difficult. I can tell you that 
the behavior of the Federal Reserve, the money that they've been pumping in, records amounts, the interest rates that have been low for 15 years, now even lower, have totally failed. I mean, let's be real clear. Two weeks ago, the Federal Reserve dropped interest rates by a half a point. Everybody said, wow, it had no positive effect that anyone can discern. A week later, they cut the interest rate, that time by a full percent. Everyone said, wow, twice, and it was again a total failure. Uh, The only thing you can say, and even that without certainty, is that it would have been even worse, perhaps, if they hadn't done it, but that's that's not much comfort. And now we see this $2 trillion fiscal program of stimulus, and all I can do as an economist and a historian is shake my head and repeat the old phrase, way too little, way too late. Let's remember, the if the metaphor, if the parallel is the Great Depression, which it is, we can see that with the unemployment numbers already, then let's compare giving $1,200 to every taxpayer, maybe 500 to their kids, and maybe an extra few hundred to the unemployment check, versus what was done in the 1930s. Roosevelt begins by creating the Social Security system, which we had never had. He declares at a time when the government is much more in trouble revenue-wise than it is today, and we have much more unemployment even than we have today, he declares the Social Security system is going to give every American 65 years of age or older a check every month for the rest of their lives rather than a one-time check for $1,200. I mean, you're talking an elephant versus a flea, but that's not all. You know, a few months later, he declares the unemployment compensation system. Everybody who's out of work, and in those days it was tens of millions, is now going to get a check from the federal government every week for a year or longer, dwarfing by many times, a multiple of many times, $1,200 per voter. And finally, the public employment program from 1934 to 41, 15 million Americans were given a federal job, an important job, doing all kinds of important things so that unemployed people would have a job, would have income, would have the self-esteem that goes with it, would be able to make their mortgage payments to hold on to their home. None of that is being done now. People are being told, go do nothing. No government program for them to be useful to one another. No planning for anything. I mean, the level of failure of this system to either prepare for or cope with this kind of a disaster, it would make you think, gee, this is something new. Nobody could prepare for it. But that's the opposite of the truth. We had a a pandemic like this in 1918, worse than this one, at least it looks that way. We know exactly how it works and what needs to be done. A few years ago, we had SARS, we had MERS, we had Ebola. I mean, we know what this is. We know that the spread of the disease is. There is no excuse for the level of breakdown. And what you're seeing is the cascade of consequences when a system has been focused on private profit maximization instead of meeting the needs of a society, which in any rational way would include preparing for something as well known as viral pandemics. In 1929, the stock market crash 
in and of itself didn't cause the depression, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but rather everybody was in debt. There were all these people who owned stocks on margin. And as the right. stock market went down, those margin calls got hit and people had to, you know, they had to pay back the debts and they couldn't do it. And that's really what crashed the system. We have massive debt in the United States right now. That bubble has not yet started to burst, has it? And do you expect it to? Yes. I mean, we are much more indebted than we were in 1929. But the irony there, Tom, I have to get this out. The irony is the reason corporations have greater debt now than at any time in American history is that we solved the crash, the dot-com crash in 2000, and then the, the subprime mortgage crash in 2009 by lowering interest rates, making it an invitation with all that money and the low interest rates for every corporation, no matter what the problem it had in its business, to solve it by getting essentially free money and going into levels of debt that are now about to burst because the underlying economy cannot generate the profits out of which that debt was supposed to be repaid. And the government acts as though this catastrophe is somehow not going to happen. That's a mistake. And it makes Are you expecting a, a large defaults on corporate bonds now? Well, I think what the government is going to do is basically either allow that to happen, which would be catastrophic, or simply suspend all repayment of credit and have the government finally step in and say what has already been the truth. We are now the economy. The government guarantees everything. Private capitalism has collapsed, and we'll figure out what we do from here. Wow. I understand the Fed is buying corporate bonds right now, too. Yep. Yep. That's the first step. Yeah. Amazing. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf.com. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Thanks for dropping by today. Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. Always great talking with you. I always learn something. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Richard Wolf's Understanding Socialism. This is from the introduction. Socialism is a kind of yearning for a better life than what capitalism permits for most people. Socialist yearnings are as old as capitalism itself because they are its products. Where and when capitalism's problems and failings have accumulated criticism and critics, socialist voices have arisen. And so it is again now. Any serious discussion of socialism must begin by acknowledging socialism's rich diversity. Whatever particular aspect of socialism we choose to analyze, they need to be located within socialism's complexity. That avoids presenting one's own interpretation as if it were the entirety of socialism. In this book, I focus on the economic aspects of socialism, how it differs from capitalism in broad outlines. I'm more interested in socialist critiques of capitalism and their implications about socialist alternatives than in the particulars of the few early experiments in erecting socialist systems, USSR, People's Republic of China, and so on, that history so far offers. Finally, my own education and work constrain me to concentrate on Western Europe and North America. Some important aspects of socialism are thus not covered or discussed here. Yearnings for better lives, such as socialism proposes, are not new. In slave societies, the slaves hoped and dreamed of lives less hard and less out of their own control. Their yearning aimed to obtain freedom. They sought social change that would preclude any one person being the property of another. In feudal societies, the serfs, free in the sense that no one owned them, yearned for better lives too. Their subordination to lords included heavy labor and other burdens that they wanted lifted. 
They hoped and dreamed of a society in which they would not be bound to the land, the lord of that land, and the feudal dues of labor and subservience. The serfs mobilized in the 1789 French Revolution to demand liberty, equality, and brotherhood. In effect, the serfs had expanded on what the slaves had called freedom. In the American Revolution against British King George III, the revolutionaries were neither slaves nor serfs. They were mostly self-employed farmers, craftspeople, and merchants subject to a foreign feudal kingdom. They wanted liberty as individuals to pursue their dreams without hindrance from feudalism or monarchism, whether foreign or domestic. They added democracy to the goals advanced by the slaves and serfs before them. The different systems of slavery, feudalism, and small-scale self-employment produce masses of people yearning for better lives. Eventually, each of those systems provoked revolutions. Many people then sought to break away from and go beyond those systems. The French and American revolutions marked key moments in the social transformations of major pre-capitalist systems into capitalist ones. By capitalist system, we mean that particular organization of production in which the basic human relation is employer-employee instead of master-slave, lord-serf, or individual self-employment. The revolutionaries who wanted and built capitalism hoped and believed the transition to employer-employee relations of production would bring with them the liberty, equality, brotherhood, and democracy they had yearned for. The revolution's leaders promised to themselves and to the people they led that those goals would be achieved. But the transition to capitalist employer-employee relations that increasingly replaced the previous slave, feudal, and self-employment relations of production had unintended consequences. Capitalism soon proved to be different from what its revolutionaries had hoped. While it enabled some people to be more free and more independent than slaves, serf, or self-employed subjects of monarchies had been, it also seriously limited freedom, independence, and democracy for many. Capitalism betrayed many of the promises made by its advocates. It produced and reproduced great inequalities of income and wealth. Poverty proved to be as endemic as capitalism seemed equally adept at producing and reproducing both wealth and poverty. The capitalist rich used their wealth to shape and control politics and culture. Democratic forms hid very undemocratic content. The cyclical instability attending capitalism constantly threatened and hurt large numbers of people, and so on. Growing numbers of employees within capitalism began to yearn for better lives. They defined those yearnings first in the familiar terms of the earlier French and American revolutions, equality, fraternity, liberty, and democracy. They criticized a capitalism that failed to deliver those to most people and demanded social changes to achieve them. Many people still continue to want a better, softer, friendlier capitalism, where government regulates and intervenes to achieve more of what the French and American revolutionaries had yearned for and promised. They are also often self-defined as socialists. However, capitalism's development provoked another different perspective that also called itself socialism. In that view, capitalism had not broken from slavery, feudalism, and monarchy nearly as much as its advocates had imagined. Slavery had master slaves, feudalism had lord serfs, and monarchy had king subjects as their key sources of their inequalities, lack of freedom, oppressions, and conflicts. The employer-employee relation of production and capitalism generated parallel problems. Capitalism installed monarchies inside individual workplaces, even as monarchies outside workplaces were rejected. Kings mostly disappeared, but inside workplaces, the owners or their designated boards of directors assumed king-like powers. 
the book Understanding Socialism by Richard Wolff. Tom Hartman here with you. You know, a normal person as president of the United States, you know, like if we had John Kennedy or Abraham Lincoln or something as president, or, or even George W. Bush, would anguish over telling his nation that a quarter million of our citizens were going to have to die because that president had listened to Fox News hosts and spent two months holding rallies and playing golf when he could have been ordering testing kits or ventilators or personal protective equipment. I mean, imagine John Kennedy or, or Barack Obama in the White House Situation Room and their top scientist sits them down and says, Mr. President, we've determined that a quarter million Americans are going to die. You have to prepare the nation. I mean, you think back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, a Kennedy or an Obama would, like Lincoln did, be tortured by this horrible burden. I mean, they'd be thinking of how to nurture and reassure the people, knowing that literally tens of millions of Americans within a matter of weeks are going to lose their parents or grandparents, their siblings or children, their best friends or their neighbors. He'd be reflecting on his past failures and how they contributed to this massive death toll and how he could atone for them. I mean, think of how Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt had to prepare the American people for war. Wilson actually started in 1915. In his first term as president, the war in Europe had started, and Woodrow Wilson was preparing America. The way that he prepared us, he said, I'm going to keep us out of the war, and the way I'm going to do it is peace through strength. We need to start building the army, and he invoked his version of the Defense Production Act and said, you know, industry has to start making tanks and airplanes, and we've got to get ready for this war so we can avoid this war. And that worked for two years. He got reelected in 1916 on the slogan, he saved us, he kept us out of the war. But he was preparing the country. You know, I mean, he was the president. He knew that there was probably no choice, but that America was ultimately going to have to get into that war. Same thing with Franklin Roosevelt. The preparation he did, in both cases, they prepared the country for years before those wars. They did everything they could. And still, they held us close through those terrible times. FDR reaching out with his fireside chats, reassuring Americans, not BSing them, not blowing smoke, not gaslighting them, not trying to talk about how wonderful his ratings were, or how many people loved listening to his fireside chats, or how much his uh, military generals were congratulating him on the fact that he actually understood this stuff. Most people are amazed. Right? FDR never did any of that. He understood that Americans were hurting. But Trump? Trump says, he just walks out in front of the cameras and says, well, two million of you were supposed to die, but I'm so great I got it down to a quarter million. I'm an expert on these things. You should be thankful that I got the numbers where they are so far. Good luck. I mean, that's essentially what he said. I mean, Trump's sociopathy is so painfully obvious. His inability to have empathy or to care for anybody other than himself and his own family is so burningly apparent 
that most of us are watching in horror and shock. I got to tell you, the election and a new president cannot come fast enough for me. I mean, we're just seeing this incompetence writ large. This from Politico. Last week, a Trump administration official working to secure much-needed protective gear for doctors and nurses in the United States had a startling encounter with colleagues' counterparts in Thailand. The official asked the Thai people for help. Hey, you got any extra personal protective gear? Only to be informed by the puzzled voices on the far side of the line that a U.S. shipment of those same supplies, the second of two so far, was already on its way to Bangkok. This was personal protective equipment, masks, respirators, ventilators. We shipped two shipments of them to Thailand. Maxine Waters tweeted this a couple of days ago. She she tweeted, Trump, you incompetent idiot. You sent 18 tons of PPE to China. This was back in February, mid-February, and he actually did this. But you ignored warnings and called these concerns a hoax. It was actually 17.8 tons of supplies, which included masks, gowns, gauze, and respirators. Maxine Waters goes on to say, You've endangered doctors and nurses, aides and orderlies and janitors, all risking their lives to save ours. Pray for forgiveness for the harm you're causing. Amen, Maxine. Meanwhile, we're seeing now the bizarre nature of capitalism dominating an economic and political system rather than rational, regulated capitalism where, you know, the government is actually making some decisions. For example, the Hahnemann University, uh, Samuel Hahnemann was the founder of homeopathy, actually, back in the day. And one of the first hospitals in the United States was the Hahnemann University Hospital. I'm not sure if it was this exact same one, but uh, hospitals named after Samuel Hahnemann were all over the country back in the 1800s and the 1700s even. No, it would be the 1800s. But in any case, there is a 500-bed hospital in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, that closed last year in September of 2019. It closed just six months ago. And Philadelphia wants to reopen it. But there's this guy, his name is Joel Friedman. He's a real estate investor in California. This article that was published by Igor Dariush in Salon The hospital will remain empty after owner Joel Friedman, a California real estate investor, demanded that the city either buy the property or pay him almost a million dollars a month in rental and other costs. And the city is like, we can't afford that. Thanks, but no thanks. Meanwhile, Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby has reopened their stores. Hobby Lobby on Monday reopened all 19 of its stores in Ohio, 17 out of 20 in Wisconsin. And the company circulated talking points to managers, Travis Geddes is writing over at Raw Story, to managers if local authorities ask questions about the decision. One of the three Wisconsin stores remains closed after it was forcibly shuttered by police. A similar incident was reported in Jeffersonville, Indiana, where local authorities forced Hobby Lobby to close after reopening for one hour. Meanwhile, a company in Texas, industrial supplier Hatfield & Company, is sitting on two million masks. They're saying, we want $6.3 million for this. That would be $3 a mask. These are 50-cent masks, typically. For a minimum order of a million masks, an option of buying 2 million more for nearly 13 million. 
This is highway robbery, said an industry spokesperson familiar with Hadfield and Company's pitch, who was not authorized to speak to the media and requested anonymity. He said, it's just disgusting to me. This company is based in the uh, Dallas suburb of Rockwell and uh, doesn't stock these as their uh, normal line of products. But the company found a supplier for the masks. And and so they're they're just a middleman, right? But hey, let's jack up the price and make some money. There's There's a crisis going on after all. Never let a little crisis go to waste, right? As an opportunity to make some money. I got to tell you about the hospitals and what they're doing to the doctors now, too. Did you know the doctors have been basically sold to companies that are owned by private equity that that contract with the doctors and then contract with the hospital? It's bizarre. I'll tell you about it in a little bit. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Right after we come back from the break, capitalism is, is just, you know, devastating us right now as a consequence of this crisis. So we have a new video up over at TomHartman.com for uh, people who are signed up. And it's about how Donald Trump, 16 days after Mr. Khashoggi was murdered by the Saudis in Turkey and his body dismembered and vanished, 16 days after that happened, without notifying Congress and with virtually no mention to anybody, Donald Trump authorized the transfer of top-secret nuclear technology to the Saudis. This should be a serious issue. Tim Kaine, the senator from Virginia, is raising hell about it because Khashoggi lived in Virginia. But I think everybody in Congress should be raising hell about this. And when you back this up with this new report out from ProPublica that the Saudis were involved in 9-11, it gets real interesting. So you can check that out over at TomHartman.com. You know, look for our video. Ray in Leavenworth, Washington. Hey, Ray, what's that's not where the prison is, is it? Yeah, I'm in it right now. That's Kansas. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Leavenworth, Kansas is the prison. So what's up, Ray? Yeah. Any, I'm just north of you guys. So uh-huh. hey, I was reading that they want to get ready to start a war in Iraq with Iran, the U.S. And I was wondering well, if you had well heard anything Reagan. or read anything about it. No, I, ha- so I haven't seen anything. I guess they're Reagan. gearing up to get something going. Yeah. During the Reagan and Bush administrations, we were selling, we were giving, actually, satellite intelligence to Iran so that they could attack Iraq. And then we were selling poison gas and weapons of mass destruction to Iraq so that they could attack Iran. And both countries lost a million men in that battle during the Reagan-Bush years. So we have well, a history doing that. But, you know, whether it's going on right now, I, I honestly don't know. Ray, thanks for the call. I'll have to check into that. I'll look it up. Kurt in uh, Los Angeles. Hey, Kurt, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hey, good morning, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I don't know if you brought up there's this article in ProPublica that the federal government a few years ago actually paid a company to develop a low-cost, easy-to-use ventilator. And Yes, they, I have it in my uh, stack of stuff to rant about. How do we get this design to be open source? Because that's the oh, that's taxpayer paid. It's already developed. And that's what Tesla and General Motors are waiting. They're waiting for a design that they can tool up and build. 
That is a great point, Kurt. Well, the federal government has the ability to cancel patents, you know, I was going to say anytime they want. I'm guessing that there are some restrictions on it. But during a time of emergency, I would think that they would have the ability to cancel a patent. That said, you know, Trump is not dealing with this as if it's an emergency. You know, he's he's just singing his little tunes. So I don't know. I'll, I, well, but, actually, but you will hear about that in a few minutes. Okay. Go didn't ahead. FDR cancel patents with radios and stuff during World War II so anybody could build them? I don't know, but I will look that up, Kurt. Boy, you guys are raising some great questions today. Carol in, Mo- in Montgomery, Texas? Texas, yes. Okay. What's up, Carol? Well, I just wanted to comment on the Postal Service. I'm a retired postal employee. I retired with civil service benefits. And I've been hearing a lot of uh, chatter lately about the Postal Service about to uh, have to uh, close close its doors, you know, shutter our services. Mm. And I just wanted to comment on the, the so-called junk mail. Mm-hmm. When I was there, we didn't call that it keeps junk the post mail. Office That's alive. revenue. That's revenue. Right. That's what exactly. we operations and paying employees. And if the Postal Service goes out of business, that's going to cause a lot of uh, job loss and it's going to be not pretty. <laughs> I completely agree with you. Carol, thank you for the call. And, and thank you for being a postal worker. We'll be back. Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. Hey, we have a new video up over at TomHartman.com, and it's about the state representative, Timothy Gintner, in Ohio, who has proposed legislation. It actually passed the House of Representatives in Ohio, HB 164. It's now going to the Senate, where there are 33 senators, nine of them Democrats. This legislation, if you were to ask a student, say you're a science teacher, and you were to ask a student the question like, Does the sun rotate around the earth? Is the earth the center of the universe? And the student said yes. You would have to grade the answer as correct because the student might belong to some cult that believes that the earth is at the center of the universe. Seriously. Religion trumps science in the classroom. It is getting so weird out there. Anyhow, you can check out the whole, all the details of it in our little video over at TomHartman.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's home equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. I wanted to expand on this rant about what is happening with basically unregulated capitalism. We used to have, for example, used to be in most states, I know I know it was in Michigan when I was growing up there and the first two businesses that I owned were in Michigan, that if you ran a hospital, it had to be nonprofit. If you ran a health insurance company, it had to be nonprofit. Now, it might have been legal in some states for them to be for-profit. I, you know, I don't recall, frankly, but it used to be nonprofit, and you used to have to have actual employees that you paid. Well, it turns out that the, that the uh, hospitals are contracting with companies that provide HR services, right? So the hospital, say there's a thousand people working in the hospital. What the hospital does is those thousand people actually don't work for the hospital. They work for a separate company, for example, Alteon. And Alteon then pays the employees and they negotiate. Well, they don't actually negotiate with the employees because nobody has unions in these areas. But, but basically, they, you know, they say, okay, you're going to get a 401k and here's what your pay is going to be and blah, 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 blah. And then they go to the hospital every month and say, okay, your payroll this month was uh, you know, $47,000 or 140, whatever it is, you know. And so the company writes one check to the payroll company, and then the payroll company deals with the employees because those employees don't actually work for the hospital. They work for Alteon. And Alteon is actually owned, uh, I believe Alteon is owned, by one of these uh, private equity companies. Well, actually, I don't know about Alteon. Team Health is bought by Blackstone Group in 2016. That's a company that basically uh, employs doctors, nurses, etc. And Envision Healthcare is owned by KKR which means that they're going to just be brutal. And here we go. Isaac Arnsdorf over on ProPublica. This was a ProPublica investigation. Most ER providers in the U.S. work for staffing companies that have contracts with hospitals. Those staffing companies are losing revenue as hospitals postpone elective procedures. Health insurance companies are also processing claims more slowly. So Steve Holtzclaw, the CEO of Alteon Health, put out a memo saying that the company is going to be reducing hours for clinicians, cutting pay for administrative employees by 20%, suspending 401k matches, suspending bonuses, and suspending paid time off. In a follow-up memo sent to salaried physicians on Tuesday night, Alteon said it would convert them to an hourly rate, implying that they would start earning less money since the company already had said it was going to reduce their hours. One doc who works for Alteon in a hospital 
says it's completely demoralizing. At this time of all times, we're putting ourselves at risk, but we're also putting our families at risk. And there are extra burdens on these people, on the, on the employees. I mean, a lot of these docs and nurses and, and hospital workers are literally having to live separate from their families. And that can be very expensive, not to mention, you know, very troubling. Other employers will probably follow suit, Holtz Claus said. He's the CEO of this one company, citing conversations with his counterparts across the industry. He wrote, quote, you can be assured that similar measures are being contemplated within these organizations and will likely be implemented in the coming weeks. Altion, yeah, is owned by a private equity company called Fraser Healthcare Partners. This is mind-boggling. Hospital operators that actually employ their doctors have also announced cuts. Tenant Healthcare said it's going to postpone 401k matches. It's going to tighten spending. Emergency room doctors at Boston's Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center have been told some of their accrued pay is being held back. Uh, 1,100 staffers at Atrius Health in Massachusetts are facing reduced paychecks or unpaid furloughs. Raises for medical staff at South Shore Health and other health system in Massachusetts are being delayed. And this all despite the fact that in that $2 trillion package, there's hundreds of billions of dollars earmarked specifically for hospitals. They will take that money on the back end and fatten their bottom lines, but they're screwing their doctors right now. Meanwhile, in Kansas, the Sumner County Hospital shut its door unexpectedly after the close of business last Thursday. Uh, Why? Well, they said that uh, the state of Kansas did not expand Medicaid, and therefore they're operating at a loss, and that loss is getting more severe as COVID patients are showing up without insurance. So they just shut the hospital down. This is the sixth rural hospital in Kansas to close. Wait until this thing hits the red states. Donald Trump thinks that you know, everything's going to be fine because this is just taking out the big cities and the blue states. It's taking out Seattle. It's taking out New York. It's taking out Detroit. It's hitting Chicago. Oh, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, says Donald Trump. Well, you wait until it starts hitting rural Kansas. You're going to have some seriously pissed off people out there. Uh, the main entrance of the hospital, they know, it was blocked off with a blue plastic tarp. I mean, this is, this is as bad as it gets. And then... Now is the time when the Obama, Obamacare, you know, the special enrollment period is really needed, right? There's people who have no health insurance. They just lost their jobs. They no longer have health insurance. They want to get on Obamacare. So and people right across the spectrum have been pleading with Trump to open the window, open the website so that people can sign up for Obamacare. Trump says, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Thank you very much. No. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. You can read about that over at Politico. Quote, the Trump administration has decided against reopening Obamacare enrollment to uninsured Americans during the coronavirus pandemic. Hey, welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you live from Portland, Oregon. Josh in Millerton, New York. Hey, Josh, what's on your mind today? Tom, thanks for having me on your show. You have a great show. I think it's a public service, my friend. I don't know if you remember the term Prozac Nation. I do. I remember the book, too, by uh, Peter. I'm pretty sure it was Peter, Dr. Peter Bregan. He's been on the show a number of times. But back to you, Josh, what's on your mind? I feel like, you know, it's, it's the, the Tom Hartman show is similar to that for progressives. I mean, boy, do we need an outlet right now. I'm actually talking maybe more for myself because, you know, I'm an activist, but an activist for a quarter century now. And I'm an attorney. Things slowed down, not going to court anymore, not meeting with clients. 
And uh, it's just such a breath of fresh air to be able to call somebody like you and, you know, talk to you about some of the pressing issues. So thank you. You're welcome. So what did you want to talk about, Josh? Well, it's kind of interesting. You know, I, I started doing another activity with some activist friends of mine who were talking about what to do about the expansion of natural gas in the state of New York. And then when the crisis hit, everybody kind of said to me, you know, we got to wait. You know, and, and my whole thing, and I'm not always the most diplomatic person, but I said, you know, the special interests and the money is not waiting. You know, this, mm. I think, would be a very good time to press on. And, 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 you know, I think there's a change of consciousness right now in the country that says enough is enough and we have to do things differently. So I was kind of, you know, hoping to get some advice from you about, you know, how you see that, that whole dichotomy and whether you have any suggestions. Well, two points. Number one, the fossil fuel industry, particularly the local frackers, these there's there's literally thousands of small companies across the United States that are that are doing fracking on a small scale. And they contract with fracking companies that bring in equipment, and then those companies move out, and this comp- and the and the local company just basically owns the well going forward. Those companies are heavily leveraged, and when oil and it costs between thirty and forty five dollars a, a barrel to frack oil out of the ground, and the same equipment for natural gas. And those prices are way below that right now, at least for oil. I'm not sure natural natural gas. And so uh, there was a piece in the Financial Times about how the oil patch all across the United States is is starting to experience massive disruption and, and soon they will be experiencing massive bankruptcies. So, you know, that's kind of the bright side of it. But my main point that I'd make to you, Josh, and I'm, and I'm guessing that you're well aware of this, is that you can't do anything without political power. You've got to have power. And right now, that means taking, you know, having elected officials who represent our worldview in office. And that means doing everything we can to get those people, you know, becoming precinct committee persons in our in, you know, in your local county party so that you can be the one who decides who's going to run in the primary. So you can get a couple of good progressives in the primary. So you know that you're going to end up with a good progressive candidate, whether it's state Senate, state house, governor, you know, U.S. House, U.S. Senate, whatever it may be. Now is the time to to be planning for basically power to take back the Democratic Party and, and turn it into a genuinely progressive party. So I hope that helps, Josh, and, and uh, good luck. David in San Francisco. Hey, David, what's up? Oh, hi, uh, Tom. Yeah, I was more interested in uh, a couple of calls ago, a fellow was talking about open source. And um, mm-hmm. as you probably, yeah, as you're probably aware with, you know, the public can own patents. In fact, George Washington Carver, almost all of the thousand things that he invented from the peanut and the soybean, he intentionally gave back to the public in it was a public domain. Now, mm-hmm. when you start looking at these ventilators that need to be manufactured, I think Ford published a piece saying they're going to knock out uh, 50,000 of them in 100 days. Well, if I right. remember right, was New GM, York City was... Well, they were looking for New York City, or New York anyway, was looking for 150,000 ventilators. So that means there's a log jam at the manufacturing. And I'm wondering if there couldn't be a public domain patent on a ventilator that could be produced 3D uh, printing. So any county hospital doesn't have to take the risk of having some shipping agent come across 
you know, hundreds of miles, uh, they can simply manufacture right. it within hours uh, with a 3D printer. Well, here's the, here's the problem, the patent, David. With, the, with a 3D printer, you can manufacture hard plastic, basically, parts. You can manufacture hoses and possibly valves and things like that. But the little metal springs, the motors, the windings on the motors, the, the wiring, the controllers, the you know, touchscreen displays, all of that stuff has to be made in, in high-tech factories that actually make those kinds of things. So, you know, uh, 3D printing is great and you can do a lot with it. And there may be some role in that. But I, I think the, the, the earlier caller's idea of having one of these companies that uh, just developed this. And David, thanks a lot for the call. In fact, actually, I've got this. This is the story right here This uh, that the caller was referencing. In 2015, a company called Trilogy EVO or Trilogy Evo. Now, they're a subsidiary of the big uh, Dutch company, uh, Royal Philips. But anyhow, Trilogy EVO took a $13.5 million contract with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is 2015. This is during the Obama administration. To develop an inexpensive, portable, easy-to-use ventilator that could be added to the strategic stockpile. It had to come in at under $3,300. They developed one. It was developed with our tax dollars. We paid for its development. We gave the company the money to develop it. It came out at $3,280 a piece. HHS, last September, under the Trump administration, Alex Azar, ordered 10,000 of them. The number that has shipped right now is zero. Instead of selling it, writes Joan McCarter for Daily Kos, instead of selling it, they're selling two higher-priced versions of it. One is $12,495, and uh, the other is $17,154. And despite the current emergency, quote, a, this is from HHS. A Phillips spokesman said the company has no plans to even begin production anytime this year. And by the way, they're not getting any pressure from the Trump administration to do it. In fact, just the opposite. This again, a quote. Instead, Phillips is negotiating with a White House team led by Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, to build 43,000 more complex and expensive hospital ventilators for Americans stricken by the virus. Phillips spokesperson in Amsterdam told ProPublica that they have every right to profit off American taxpayer dollars by selling the higher priced versions. You know, and, and uh, John McCarter notes, it's always going to be profits over people. Well, that company that developed that respirator with my tax dollars, that patent should be voided and it should be put into the public domain. There's a $3,200 respirator. It should be put in the public domain so that any company that wants to manufacture it that has the means can do so. It will take something more complex than a 3D printer, but they can do it. James in Seattle. Hey, James, what's on your mind? Yeah, Tom, I uh, just wanted to, uh, thanks for doing the show from your home. And But I wanted to do uh, two things I wanted to bring up. Uh, the one that I heard uh, Bernie Sanders mention about giving a stipend to medical workers. I haven't heard anybody talk about that. And I think that's, you know, extremely important. And anything that you have on uh, checking for people that have had the virus, you know, blood work or whatever, mm -hmm. is anybody out there actively chasing after it? Thanks again for everything. You there are a couple of companies that are working on a, what's called a serological test, a test that, you know, a, a pinprick on your finger where they take a little bit of your blood and, and look in the clear part of your blood, the, the serum. They look for presence of 
antibodies, specific antibodies to this, to this virus, and which would indicate that you've had it in the past and that you may have some immunity. I'm expecting probably in the next month or two, you're going to start seeing those, those uh, test kits. They are widely available right now in China, in South Korea, in Taiwan, in Japan, in uh, Germany, in several European countries. Germany is testing 100,000 people a day, right? Well, they were actually a couple of weeks ago. They're testing more than 100,000 a day right now. It's why their death rate is so low, because they have a much larger cohort of people that they've tested and they know that they've been infected, but they didn't get sick or die. So. You know, pretty straightforward stuff, James. I, I think that's going to be coming down the road. And, and with regard to extra dollars for the healthcare workers, this is something that, you know, we really need to be paying attention to and doing something about. Our, our healthcare workers are experiencing a crisis right now. And it's a crisis that has been created by allowing hypercapitalism, uh, hypercapitalization of our entire healthcare system. Nonprofit hospitals became for-profit hospitals. For-profit hospitals then, you know, basically contracted out all their employees to companies that are owned by vulture capital firms, which are squeezing the blood out of those employees. And I mean, the the whole thing has just become bizarre. We need to change it. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be back in just a moment with more of your calls and the news of the day right after this. Stick around. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Terry in uh, California listening on KPFK. Terry, what's on your mind today? Well, we went to the uh, bank yesterday, the Chase Bank, because we had a house Mm. that we moved out of and uh, moved to another city. And we rented this house to a gentleman who has a restaurant. His restaurant is underwater. So I went to the bank to find out about this, um, the way that they would help us about the mortgage. And all they Mm. said was, we'll give you a three-month not having to pay, but then you're going to have to start having to pay your mortgage plus $500 a month after that. And I would recommend if possible, that any of these mortgage companies that are doing this put the extra payments on the far end of the mortgage, extend the mortgage out another three months or whatever, instead of making us pay more, because I don't think this man will be able to make up the extra money from his restaurant because it's closed down. But anyway, that and the other thing I wanted to tell you was I knew of a lawyer who extricated a group of doctors from a company that was doing that to them. Apparently, they belonged to a group, and he represented them and got them away from the hospital, and they started their own situation. So it's possible to get away from those those vultures. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I'm real concerned yeah. about our mortgage and what we're going to do about it. And I want to thank you so much. I listen to you as much as I can. Thank you, Doc. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Terry. Thanks. It's great to hear from you. I appreciate the call. Corky in Rochester, New York. Hey, Corky. I don't, Tom. Good. Yeah, this. Uh, I worried that Trump was going to kill us all. Well, he's got a hell of a yeah. start. 
Yeah, he's, he is saying that between 100,000 and a quarter million Americans are going to die because he went golfing day after day after day and did his rallies day after day after day. Mitch McConnell says it's because he was so busy being impeached. No, I'm sorry. During that time, he was doing rallies and golfing day after day after day. Back to you, Corey. Yeah, yeah. But uh, this virus, I don't know why they're not going to the DNA of it and seeing how you can destroy it. Well, they are. Actually, it's, this virus doesn't have DNA. It's an RNA virus, which is kind of a simpler version. It's ribonucleic acid rather than deoxyribonucleic acid. But, you know, an RNA kind of preceded DNA in the evolutionary chain, as I recall, if I'm remembering my high school biology correctly. But China, in uh, late December or early January, published the entire genome of the virus. They sequenced the entire RNA genome. And that's how they make the test kits, is they look for little snippets of, you know, combinations of adenine, guanine, and cytosine, thymine, and whatever it is. It's those four amino acids. And they appear in a particular sequence, and, and they found a sequence that was unique to this virus. It was different from all other viruses in the world. And so once you know what that unique sequence is, then you can make a test kit that specifically looks for those, for that virus. And that's what they've done. That's how the test kits, you know, when the World Health Organization published their approval, you know, they said, here's how you build a test kit. Here's the piece of the virus that you look for. That was in early January. They're all over the world, those, those test kits now. Ger- Germany started testing people in January. Why weren't we on it? Because Donald Trump was ignoring it. We could have been. We could have been commissioning companies to make the test kits that were uh, developed and approved by the World Health Organization. But Donald Trump chose not to. Corky, I got to go. But thanks for the call. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a minute. Stick around. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Mike in Elira. Ohio, am I saying that right? How do you you say it? Illyria. Illyria, okay. So what's up, Mike? Thanks for watching us on YouTube. I I appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate your program, too. Look at the tax breaks that these guys got, and they had all their stock buybacks, Mm -hmm. which are assets, correct? Why do we have to bail them out? Yeah. Damn good question. I mean, I've been saying this. The aircraft industry, the, uh, the airline industry, took uh, 42 or 46 billion dollars in buybacks over the last 10 years mostly funded by tax cuts but also from profits and they bought back their stock which increased you know inflated the value of their stocks so their CEOs and their senior executives and their stockholders all made out like bandits but the workers got screwed you know the pension funds got screwed everybody else got screwed and and the and the right. flying public got screwed we paid a huge price it's estimated that americans pay an extra $5000 a year the average american family pays an extra $5000 a year in monopoly tax basically you know for these giant monopolies and those yeah. airlines are you know, asked for and got a $50 billion bailout after they took 42 to $48 billion in stock buybacks. They should have been forced to simply sell that stock back out into the open market, except that that $48 exactly. billion worth of stock is probably worth $10 billion right now. Yeah, and in, in real, yeah, in reality. I appreciate your comments. Yeah. You're, you're, you're wonderful. Appreciate okay. 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot, Mike. Good talking with you. Uh, Nina in Berkeley, California. Hey, Nina, what's up? Hey, Tom. I remembered from about about a week ago, you mentioned something about the hospitals being kind of running at 98 percent capacity. And and that I can't remember exactly what you said, but it it prompted me to to want to call. You've been trying to call ever since to say that in 97, there was a terrible flu. And my partner was the interim director of an ED emergency department at a small Central Valley hospital at the time. And they went on entire West Coast divert, which means there wasn't one single available bed for a moment in time during a really bad flu year. And that means, divert means there aren't any beds available at all, not just ICU beds. So they were having to look for, you know, up and down the West Coast, not once. It meant that they had to start looking within the interior Western states for an open Hmm. bed. And ever since that experience, they've kind of been trying to, you know, sound the alarm about, you know, how the hospitals, like, you know, pertaining to what you were just saying before the break about corporations taking over like Sutter here in the Bay Area or just, you know, different big hospital organizations taking over and making hospitals run at, at such, you know, high capacity that there is no, there's no safety valve. Anyway, I just wanted to, to put that out there. I also know someone else who is a healthcare worker for the VA and, they are also running at 98% capacity, and they are concerned about this fourth mandate for the VA. I don't know if you're aware of that. It, the fourth mandate is that it can be uh, okay. basically commandeered for civilian purposes and emergencies. And they are also running at 98% capacity and have a 55,000 doctor-nurse shortfall of staff currently. And oh, so, you know, I think, yeah. So some of the, there was a, there was a um, congressman in New York who was saying, well, we can use the VA on one of the MSNBC programs. And this person I know was like, uh, no, you can't. <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no gap. Yeah, the VA, ever since the uh, war in Iraq, I mean, it was the Bush administration that started underfunding the VA, and they've never been fully funded since. It's, it's a there real tragedy. Nina, thank, thank you for that. That's a, a good heads up on both accounts. I'm sorry, what you are going to say? Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Renee in Burbank, California. Hey, Renee, what's up? Hey, I was calling because at Gavin Newsom's daily press conference, after he was done with his prepared statements, He took questions from the reporters, and I think it was like the second or third reporter, if you want to try and find it. And he stated that he is working with other governors, and they've formed a coalition, and they're now buying together. They're not waiting for the federal government. They actually have done that. Oh, that's great. That's great. I'm glad to hear it, especially since the federal government is shipping to the red states, at least to Florida, whatever they want. I mean, this this yeah. this article in Politico about how, you know, Ron DeSantis is literally talking to Trump every day on the phone. They're stroking each other. Uh, you know, he's telling Trump how wonderful he is. Um, Which is and, insane and because Trump, they're not doing anything down there to protect their people in Florida. I know. And they're going to have, they're gonna have a, a real crisis. They're going to have an explosion. And, you know, it's on its way. It's so, just ignorant. Yeah, it's bizarre in the extreme. Thanks a lot for the call, Renee. And thanks for that tip. Polly in New Orleans. Hey, Polly, we got a minute. What's, uh, you got a quick one? Hey, Tom, yes. I don't know if I heard this on your show, but it was, it was just mentioned in the midst of a lot of other news. But I haven't heard it anywhere else, and I'm, I'm hoping that you know something about it, that while the whole nation is focused on the pandemic, that William Barr and the Justice Department are trying to get special powers to deal with the pandemic, and that 
their powers that go way beyond anything that they need right now. I know that uh, one of the things they wanted to be able to do is anybody who knowingly gives the virus to someone else would be labeled as a terrorist and um, could be jailed and not dealt with for years. Yeah, I don't think they should be labeled terrorists, but I think that it should be a felony. It should be a felony assault, and you should be looking at years in prison if you, you know, if you walk up to somebody and spit on them or something like that, and you know you're infected. Polly, you're absolutely right. The Bill Barr and the Justice Department are trying to grab all kinds of extraordinary powers, and many of them go way beyond that. We talked about it last week. It's you can you can Google it. It's pretty it's pretty bizarre. Polly, thank you for pointing that out. Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that Sue, who works on our newsletter, has just been doing an extraordinary job. We have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day she puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. And you know, she compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together and it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. Uh, no charge for that. So we're trying to get the word out. There's so many ways to communicate these messages. So just check it out at TomHartman.com. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.